Good evening and welcome to Town Square. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. As we like to say every week, this conversation can include you. The phone lines are open. Our number is 941-3689. If you call us from Oahu, use that one, 941-3689. And from the neighbor islands, or if you're listening to the live stream anyplace else, you can get to us at 877-941-3689. In the decades of discussions over homelessness in Hawaii, the one sentiment that echoes through most conversations is the need to do something about it. What exactly that should be continues to fuel the conversations over just as many years. And while attention to homelessness has both waxed and waned, the focus since Governor Ige's emergency proclamation 13 months ago has kept homelessness top of mind for most of the state. With the end of 2016 in sight and with another point in time count, plus the opening of the 2017 of legislative session happening next month. Tonight, we're considering what progress Hawaii has made for homeless people, current and future plans to get them off the streets, and the lack of truly affordable housing that keeps many of the working poor from putting roofs over heads. Joining me tonight in our studio, State Homelessness Coordinator Scott Morishige. He is now 15 months into his position with Governor Ige's administration. Also here is Rona Fukumoto. She's the Division Administrator of Housing Assistance and Referral Programs for Catholic Charities Hawaii. And Anthony Alto is a Honolulu-based documentary filmmaker whose latest film, No Room in Paradise, about Hawaii's homeless crisis, premiered this fall. And you're here, too. Again, our number is 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Thank you all for making time. This is one of those topics that has been so long in being discussed and has had so many avenues that we've gone down with it and yet we're still dealing with a lot of it and we'll continue to deal with a lot of it so as we bring this together for tonight to be able to look at where we are now and where we're going as we head into 2017 I want to ask you Scott first as you're now well into your position over a year now that you've been into being the state homelessness coordinator What's the snapshot of homelessness that you see right now, today, on December 1st, 2016? Well, I I think we've made tremendous progress over the past year, Bethan. You know, um, HUD recently released um, the report about the status of homelessness across the country. Um, and although it found that there was a slight increase here in Hawaii of 4%, if you really drill down on those numbers and you look at the context of it, the past couple of years, we were seeing increases of 10% each year, and we dramatically reduced the growth this year. And specifically on Oahu, we decreased the rate of increase for um, homelessness to less than 1%. And you have to keep in mind that those numbers are almost a year old now, so they also don't reflect all the momentum that we've made over the past year. So if you think of just what we've achieved through, you know, Aloha United Way um, is implementing the Coordinated Statewide Homeless Initiative, which has placed almost 5,000 people statewide into housing or prevented them from falling into homelessness. We have um, additional units that we've created in partnership with all four counties that are specifically designated for homeless homeless persons and their families, which was accelerated by the emergency proclamation. And we have a number of other efforts that we've spearheaded. I mean, I think that we are making headway on this. Um, and progress is slow, but it's still progress. And I think we're starting to turn the tide on this issue. Ernie, you, you deal with housing. And housing has been at the 
very cornerstone of, of all of the conversations mm-hmm. that, uh, that we've had for so many years. As you look at what's happening now, both within Oahu and throughout the state, what's, who, are coming, who are the people who are coming to you? Have they changed at all in the last year? I don't believe um, the mix has changed. Um, I think we're getting a better grasp of the, the level of need. We're now using a, a, a universal tool, to the VI SPDAT, mm-hmm. um, to, to measure what type of need. And from that, we can see you know, the, the levels of um, service. So do they need permanent supportive housing, meaning it may be an ongoing subsidy and, and pretty intense case management, or rapid rehousing, a short-term subsidy, and a little bit of case management to make sure they're okay and, and they're transitioning into their units fine. Um, or just a short-term subsidy, a one-time security deposit, a little bit of help to get their benefits uh, reinstated, whatever it would take. There's different levels that, uh, of need out there. And um, as we understand the buckets and the size of the buckets, I think, you know, Scott's been working um, and to to design programs and design funding streams to really address those needs. So I think um, the, the, the numbers may have changed, but we're getting a grasp of what they are, and, and we'll be able to, to definitely um, coordinate and address that. There are some who would say, well, this is a long time in coming that we've had people working in silos for such a long time that it was almost... Uh, you know, people who were incredulous that there wasn't more sharing of information or a means to be able to do that, not only to gather the information, but to be able to share it afterwards so that you could see how big is the bucket for this group or that group and what appropriate needs do they have that could be filled in certain ways that you've just outlined. Sure. You know, I think um, people, true, data may have been in silos and buckets, but I think on the ground, staff have been talking. We've been working with city and state um, for years. Um, and we, the community of service providers, know each other well um, and work together. So it's, it's a little misleading to say there was no sharing of information. Um, but, but I think we are definitely moving in, into the realm of data and how we can use data to, and share data in order to get to the outcomes we want. Anthony, I want to talk to you a little bit about this because over the last... Oh, 18 months to two years, you worked on a film that documented so much of what people see when they go on the street, but it gave it the backstory for some of the folks who who you profile. As you have watched what has happened over the last 18 months, what's the picture of homelessness that you have that may be different from what Scott and Rona see? So I'm not sure that my, my perception is actually different to theirs. I think that they are doing a good job. I think that the all of the service, I've been universally impressed actually by the, all of the service pro- providers. They are astonishing people. When you go out and work with them, I mean, I've been out with the nurse at IHS, Elizabeth Glenn, supposed to be supposed to work four days a week. I've been out with her on a Saturday. I, I said, what are you doing here? She said, well, I, you know, I haven't seen Gary for, for a, a month. I'm a little bit worried. I, I want to go out and look for him. Nobody's paying her to do that. So at the granular level, if you like, and, and you know, the, the governor has clearly paid att- paying attention to this. The mayor is paying attention to this. The legislature is paying attention to it. They are all trying to do what they can. But I would make a distinction between what's happening at the granular level, where I actually do see pr- a lot of progress being made, and what, what's happening, at, if you like, the 30,000-foot level. Because at the 30,000-foot level, I'm not sure if I do see 
the kind of changes that I think we need to embrace if we're really going to tackle the, the driving forces behind homelessness. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those. And we're, going to, we're starting to get some calls now. We want to bring them into the conversation. But before we do, I just want to ask you that, you know, given the fact that you all see progress, and some of those stories of progress have migrated into the public sphere, and yet there seems to be such public anger over homelessness. Uh, and although people will agree in the abstract, we need to do something about this, and these are people that we're talking about, that simmering anger where people will say, you know, I don't want this in my community. Yeah, you need to do something about it. Get them away from here. They're going to you know, color the way people look at our city, our state when they come here to visit or just I'd like to be able to get to my business and not have to you know, step over somebody else's business. Uh, those kinds of things are really difficult for people to move through because they're being confronted with this on a day-to-day basis. Do we need to do a much better job of being able to integrate some of what you all know at that granular level and what, Anthony, you recorded in, in their documentary into more public conversation to be able to come up with something that's going to work because it's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I actually think when you reflect on what's happened over the past year, um, I think the public perception really has changed. And I think um, the public as a whole is a lot more educated on this issue than they were a year ago. I think Anthony and the documentary he did really um, kind of shone a spotlight and really showed the issue of homelessness from many different dimensions that people weren't looking at it from before. But also we've had a lot of um, media coverage on this issue where people read about it in the Star Advertiser almost every day. They see it on the TV news almost every day. And I think there's a different understanding. And also um, government, I think how both the state, the city, and the other counties have approached this issue really has been grounded in community. Um, We've gone out, I've gone out to every county, attended community forums. We helped to sponsor landlord summits to bring landlords to the table to kind of look at this issue differently. I know the um, mayor and the city and county of Honolulu has done a lot of work to engage landlords specifically around veterans homelessness. And I think we need to continue those efforts because that really has started to change public perception. I think, yes, certainly there are still many people that are frustrated on a day-to-day basis, but I think their overall understanding the issue has changed. And I think a big part of that is we're starting to highlight um, the stories of real people that are impacted by this, and people are starting to see, you know, um, the homeless population isn't just um, a generic thing. These are real people, our friends and neighbors in the community that are impacted, and it could happen to any of us. We're going to talk now with with some of the folks who have been waiting patiently to get into the conversation. If you'd like to join us, 941-3689-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Going to Jameson calling us from Wanalua. Hi, um, my name is Jameson, and I have a question. Um, With homelessness being such an issue here in Honolulu, what is being done to address other municipalities on the mainland sending... um, their residentially challenged persons here um, with a one-way ticket. I've heard from several sources that happens. And what sources? It, Who's told you sorry? this? Are you talking about friends? Are you talking about? I mean, what sources? Because this uh, is fr- so, friends this, here in the community. Okay, because this is something that we've heard for years and years and years, and yet the numbers don't seem to bear that out, Scott. Maybe, maybe it's a minority of uh, the homeless here that are here on a one-way ticket, but uh, maybe it's not the. You know, um, but it, it does happen. And well, is, there, is there some way to address that? And 
I mean, with it being such homelessness being such a problem here, I mean, I, you know, we can't stand to take even one more person from uh, the mainland. So, all right, um, let me let me get is, you an is answer. Is there be done to address that, or is that just a is that? A, well, I don't think I don't think true? you're ever going to stop anything a hundred percent any more than you're going to be able to fix homelessness in in total a hundred percent. But you know, to be able to stem the 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 tide of people that you think may be coming here to be homeless in Hawaii, although, you know, IHS was trying to turn that around earlier in the year and send people back and give them a one-way ticket back from wherever they came from. Well, first of all, I think just in response, um, you know, I acknowledge that there are um, people in the homeless community who have come from out of state, but they've come to Hawaii just like many other people who come here for different reasons. Um, out of their own choice because they're coming because they think that there's better opportunities for employment here. They may have family here. They may have lived in Hawaii in the past and are returning here. But I've been doing this work for a very long time, and I think one of the most common urban myths is that other states are paying to send people here. And I I simply believe that's not true. I've been doing this work for over um, 15, 16 years now, and I've never encountered a single instance of that. And Rona, I don't know if you've ever run it. Yeah, I mean, what, what we have been continually told is that the, the many of these people who have come here have come here because they've moved for a mm-hmm. job, then they've lost the job, or they've come yeah. here to be with family thinking that they're going to explore it. But for some reason, their lives have gone wrong, mm-hmm. and then they're they're stuck and in some cases can't get back to where they are, which is kind of why IHS was sending them back. Also, right. I... I believe, you know, in some cases, it may be just a misunderstanding. Um, It's not a municipality sending someone here, but maybe it's a person saving up their their Social Security check or their benefits check and then coming. And um, it doesn't maybe translate as that, but again, it goes back to choice. It may be a family member. That's what I've heard, a family member wanting the best for their son, daughter, you know, um, grandchild. And Hawaii is where they want to be. It's a safe place as far as the the, um, climate and so they end up here and hoping that they will do better and hoping that they will be able to, to make a go of it. And like you said, some are end up stuck or, or not. The dreams don't pan out. So I don't, I don't, similar to Scott, I've never heard of a case where a municipality has sent someone. It's a red herring, and we need to knock it on the head. It's, it's actually a waste of our time to be talking about this. I mean, I don't mean to be rude to the caller. I'm sure he's, he's telling the truth when he says a lot of people have told him this, but it's just not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you might as well believe there are alligators in our sewer system. There's another urban myth for you. It's not true. The, the truth is that about 10% of the people who are homeless, when they got here, found themselves homeless. Uh, in other words, they were almost instantly homeless when they got here. But that's not because they wanted to come here and be homeless. Then maybe there are a few of them who came under their own scene. Yeah, they, they weren't coming here yeah. to be homeless in Hawaii because it's easier to be homeless but, in Hawaii. You know, I, we worked quite hard to find a guy for our film who represented this group, if you like. And his son sent him here. But he thought he had a job when he got here. He had a friend out in Waianae who said, yeah, I, I can get you. You've got some carpentry skills, right? And then he found out it didn't pan out. And then he was like, oh, now what do I do? He did not think he was going to be ending, ending up sleeping on the beach. But that is, in fact, the reality. He had, he had a couple of weeks on the guy's couch, and then he was kicked out. And that's how he ended up homeless. So you could say that he was sent here. His son sent him here. But even he didn't come here thinking, oh, it's going to be the easy life. I'm just going to lie on the beach and, and pluck coconuts from the coconut tree and, and live for free. He thought he was going to work. And the, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of people 
who end up homeless end up homeless for a very good reason. They have emergencies. And as you said, there are always going to be people who are homeless because people are always going to have emergencies. They're going to split up with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or they're going to get divorced or they're going to have a medical emergency or they're going to lose their job. And one way or another, they're going to end up homeless. And we need to be able to cater for those emergencies and take care of those people. And that's where a lot of our focus is going at the moment. And then a lot of our focus is going on the chronically homeless in dealing with them on a day-to-day basis and trying to get them off the streets. But I come back to this issue of what are we doing to deal, to, to deal with the underlying problems, the lack of affordable housing pr- particularly, and the, the, the lack of uh, investment in things like dealing with people who have severe mental illness and case management, uh, the the shortage of, of beds for detox and rehab in drug addiction. And the, the short amount of time that they're actually kept in whatever beds we have. Right. Those are issues that we really need to be focusing on. Well, the U.S. Surgeon General's report, uh, which many are calling historical, tends to be speaking exactly to some of those issues, although obviously not pointed directly at homelessness, but looking at substance abuse and what's really necessary to be able to get someone into a life beyond abuse. 941-3689 is our number, or 877-941-3689. Going now to Norm calling us from Macaulay area. Aloha, Norm. Welcome to Town Square. Aloha. Um, as a health care provider, I've run into a number of people who became homeless due to having to move out of a domestic violence situation, or they had you know, a medical problem that, uh, you know, used up all their financial resources, and then they and their entire family ended up homeless. And I just think we really need to tackle the problem of affordable housing here. It is just, it's out of control. The rich developers are, you know, getting all kinds of variances and that sort of thing. And we've just got to do something about that. Otherwise, people are going to, this this problem is not going to get better. Okay, Norm. I think that's, you know, that's all I have to say. Okay, Norm, you're you're saying the same thing that many people have said for years and years and decades and decades. It comes down to affordable housing and not affordable housing at a level where, you know, somebody come come in and, and, and buy a little studio, but you're talking about real affordable rental housing and where that's going to be and the development of all of that. And we've seen a little tiny bit of that, but certainly nothing that we need, and 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 truly housing at all levels, but especially when you're talking about this for a population that uh, has been formerly homeless. So Scott and and Rona, both of you, I know since you deal so much with ha- housing, Rona, that if you have to have free land to be able to do it, if you're a developer, and if you're able to get the low income housing tax credit and do some swaps or be able to somehow incentivize that better so that you can at least afford to do it and not have to pay out of pocket to do it. That's a big hurdle for most developers. And we've had Stanford Caron saying how difficult that has been, but that's what you know is, is part of the deal if you're going to do it. And the fact that we've had inclusionary rules that have changed over the years from way back when, I think in the 70s, 80s, where it was 60% and then it came down to 30%. But still, we have people doing swaps and changes, and so you don't necessarily have a full integration within a building of people at various different levels. We're watching a lot of development now. Where do we go from here? I mean, Rona, you deal with this. Um, I think 
You know, the governor's plan was to have a production goal of 10,000 units by 2020. And um, as far as um, the moving into that plan, you know, it was to leverage resources and to, you know, to participate in the development of regional infrastructure and to to make um, it easier for develops to uh, developers to to build and um, the governor and his team listened and I probably should let Scott answer on this but um, changes were made um, to the application process so that it would be more conducive to building to, so that we could get to that goal that got easier but what about the land itself and we're talking about the f- little finite place where we all live well I think we have to move on this issue on multiple fronts. And we really have engaged the developer community. Um, I think the governor convened last year, shortly after I had started, a group of um, housing developers to really get their input how to make refinements to the process so that we can um, better target some of the resources like the Rental Housing Revolving Fund, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. and I think we're starting to see some headway from that. I think we've really um, been aggressive in our request to the legislature in prioritizing affordable housing as one of the governor's top priorities. And I think the legislature has provided tremendous support in that area. I think we also, through the emergency proclamation last year, we really focused on creating housing specifically for homeless persons because we know that we're dealing with a population that is not going to be able to access housing even at the affordability level of 60% AMI. So we need we work together with the counties, the city and county of Honolulu and the other counties as well to help them identify specific projects that they were working on and use the emergency proclamation to fast track that. And through that process, we were bring, able to bring on um, about 500 new units um, really shortened amount of time by a year or more for many of these projects. And we're now in the process of working with the city and county to see, okay, as you're bringing up these new units, how can we partner with you, the state, I look at some of our service dollars and pair them with these units so we can move homeless individuals off the streets and into permanent housing. And that has to be our focus. But at the same time, on the larger level, we are really looking at our state housing agencies, the Hawaii Housing Finance Development Corporation, um, HCDA, and public housing, and seeing how can we um, have a collective strategy to really move on housing at all fronts. When we've talked to other developers, some who operate in California and also here, and they've been able to do smaller projects, but they say the bottom, bottom line is if they can't get free land, they really can't afford to do it. They can cobble together the rest of it through various means, but they can't simply go out and purchase the land. So we're still back to looking for land. Well, I think it requires you know coordination with the city and county of Honolulu as well. I think one of the opportunities to re- when we are looking at housing development is um, transit-oriented development. And I know that there... Um, one things that came out of the legislature this past year um, was to establish an interagency council on transit-oriented development. And I know that's one of the things that that council is looking at is how to better coordinate resources between the state and the city and tackle some of these challenging issues, such as the availability of land and also the accessibility of some of the financing tools. That's a familiar refrain, this idea of coordinating resources and coordinating efforts. Anthony? Well, you know, there are, there are several things here. First off, Scott's quite right that you need housing that's aimed at the chronically homeless. Uh, they, they need special facilities. They need special handholding. They need case, work, case managers to help them. 
in my film, the, we, we saw one of the, the homeless families get off the streets into, sub, into housing that's provided through the Housing First program. And one of the things they immediately found is how lonely they were. Mm-hmm. And part of the consequence of that is that the, the woman wasn't able to immediately tackle her drug addiction problem. She was still smoking ice, even though the reason that she started again smoking ice is because she, she wasn't smoking ice when she became homeless. But being on the streets, she started smoking ice. When she got into her housing, she thought, oh, all my problems behind me. Then she found that she was very lonely. She didn't see a case manager because we don't have enough case managers. She started smoking again. She lost all of her kids. So that was the jolt that she needed to, to get clean. She's now getting clean and CPS, the Child Protective Services, Child Welfare Services are now working on putting her back together with her kids. But in the meantime, who picked up the tab for looking after those kids? It's a classic example of how we're using money in, in a way that's not very, very helpful. But that's, that's one, one piece of it, how we house and how we deal with the people who are chronically homeless. But I come back to this business of the 30,000 foot. We need 10,000 units, the governor is saying, in four years. 22,000 units, the legislature is saying, by 2026. We need thousands upon thousands of units to deal with this problem, this, the fact that we don't have enough affordable housing. I mean, just, just some basic numbers. What is the average wage of the average renter in Honolulu? It's $14.50 an hour. When you, if you stick to the guidelines that are established by the federal government as to how much money you should spend, about you should spend 30% of your income on housing, somebody making $14.50 an hour, which is the average wage earner, renter in this city, he can afford 700 bucks a month. What is the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment in Honolulu? It's 1800 bucks a month. We're talking about a huge chasm. And the only way that you're going to resolve that is by starting to build a lot more housing. And I don't see at this point what is happening to, to really kickstart that. There are some hopeful signs that the, the, the TOD that's being planned is great. But, but as, you, as you yourself pointed out, just because you say that you're going to have TOD and you have a mechanism, to, to, to a place where the people can build, that still doesn't deal with the issue of how much it costs. The average affordable unit requires about $100,000 of subsidy. I mean, it's a little bit less if you've got a, if you're building a, a one a studio. It's a little bit more if you're building a three bedroom. But on average, it's about a hundred thousand dollars per unit, and we we're talking about building twenty two thousand affordable units. So the the math is easy. We're talking about two point two billion dollars. So where's that money coming from? So I, Stanford Carr, I think, was supposed to join us today. He can't. One of the things that Stanford points out is that if we were to issue forty year general obligation bonds. $2.2 billion worth of 40-year general obligation bonds, which are triple tax-free, at today's interest rates, the amortization rate on that will cost us about $100 million a year. How much money did the legislature appropriate this year for affordable housing? $100 million. But that money is being spent on a pay-as-you-go basis. And so if we're lucky, we may get 1,000 units. If we had that $2.2 billion sitting in a bank account that we could draw on, we could build 2,200 units. So we're not being very smart still on how we're because spending money. Because it's in fits and spurts. Well, also, I think it takes a huge amount yeah. of political courage to come out and say we're going to borrow $2.2 billion. The fact that it's actually not going to cost us a penny more than we're already spending, that we won't have to raise taxes in order to do it, is a message that the public at large needs to hear. But we are not – we are not – Looking at this, with we're not taking a big enough hammer to deal with this problem. Which, after we had that conversation when you were on the conversation in the morning show, 
And we got some feedback about people asking the question, why aren't we talking about this? Why then, if that is a, a feasible solution, are we not, in fact, talking more openly about that and understanding that it's going to cost us one way or another? We say that a lot, too. But do we really mean it? And are we really willing, truly willing, to do something about this? Or do we just like talking about it? Well, I think clearly, you know, affordable housing has been a priority for the governor, the mayor, and I think just for the community as a whole. And I think one of the challenging things, though, about being in government is that you really have to look at things from the 30,000-foot level and realize that affordable housing is one of many competing interests. They're all very important, all really significant. It's competing against public education, against health care, reforms to our prison system. These are all things where if we had $2 billion, it would make a huge impact if we could invest that money up front. But the pot is limited. So you really have to look at, well, how do we strategically target money so that we're able to meet all of these varying needs but still meeting some of the state's other competing obligations. So I think... Well, that's what's coming out of the same pot. But I mean, he's suggesting, and others have suggested too, that if you were able to float these bonds, you'd have another pot that wouldn't be necessarily competing with those same interests that you just outlined. Well, I think that's certainly a dialogue that I think maybe should continue throughout the legislative session. But I think it's... I, I. I think you, you, I just want to make clear that, I mean, this really is something that is top of mind for the administration and something that we're pushing on just in terms of prioritizing resources to this issue. But as far as the specifics of how this um, is done, I think that's a dialogue that should probably occur during the session as decisions about the allocation of resources are occurring. So, Scott, I think your role, you, you, you work for the governor, you do a great job, and clearly I understand why you feel the need to def- to defend the governor, and I'm actually not criticizing the governor per se. I actually think the governor gets it and he's doing what he can. I actually think that we should be focusing a spotlight perhaps on some of the people who are listening into this show. As a community, I'm, we, we're saying that we think that people are starting to get it, but I, d- I d- actually don't know how the community at large will re- would react well, if the governor to were out. to turn around well, and we're say— we're trying to talk about that right now. I mean, right. we have community people who are— beginning to call in and they want to talk about this too because this is an idea that hasn't really been talked about in the greater public sphere. So we're going to go now to Rick from Kailua. Rick, welcome to Town Square. Thank you. Um, I had two questions and they're very different. My first question is something that you guys were talking about at the very beginning, which is how the public views this. And I'm wondering, there still seems to be a lot of complaints about the crime that is uh, attendant on any of the uh, areas that are heavily utilized by the homeless people. And then the, and I, and people who, businesses and residents of those areas feel that they're being left out in the cold in order to accommodate the homeless. And then my other question is, um, a lot of places that are expensive have had to go to uh, legislation for rent control. And has that ever been considered in Hawaii? We've had some very long discussions about about rent control, both on the the conversation, the morning show, and also on on this show, too. But I want to take the first point that you made about crime, because we've seen things happen, you know, the water fountain and the water over at Kaka'ako Park and other places where there have been things, and certainly lots of Chinatown merchants who have been incensed that Mm -hmm. they have to move through walls of, of homeless people, even 
being very critical of the River of Life mission and the fact that people will line up and kind of loiter and stay there, even though they try to move them away from storefronts, can't always do that. That kind of balance to strike to be empathic and understanding of what's happening with people and also trying to run a business or being afraid that there's going to be a crime, a criminal element there is is really frightening for people. Well, no, and and I think it's, um, you know, when the state, how the state looks at this issue of homelessness, we, um, earlier this summer, the governor announced the state's framework to address this issue that really has three main levers, affordable housing, health and human services, and public safety. And the public safety issue, I think, is a very real concern. How the state's addressed that is we realize that there's areas um, such as Kakaka Waterfront Park where you have a growing number of homeless encampments that have really created a situation that sometimes is unsafe for the people staying there as well as people using the park. has really impacted also the public's use of public spaces. So we realize we have an obligation to respond to these areas, but we want to make sure that when we do so, it's in a way that doesn't just shuffle these people around community and just push them from one area to another, but really work hand-in-hand with providers like Catholic Charities and others so that we're always um, combining a public safety action with a homeless outreach effort and really focusing on the end goal of getting people into housing. I think when we look at the challenges of some of the people in these areas, um, some of the chronically homeless individuals who remain on the streets of Chinatown or in Kaka'ako, some of the underlying issues we're starting to identify are really severe issues with mental health, or substance use. And one of the things we're looking at as we're finalizing the budget going into legislative session is really trying to increase the amount of resources that we target specifically to address these issues for people who are unsheltered in our community. We really need to look at what's um, preventing these individuals from connecting to housing, whether it's with family or in a rental unit, really trying to remove some of those barriers. We know that there is a need, like Anthony said, for additional resources for substance abuse treatment. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to prioritize as we're entering into the session. Those treatment programs, and we've talked a lot about what we have available, usually kick off at about 30 days. And yet, many of the experts that we talk to say this is not nearly long enough if you're really talking about having someone get off whatever it is they're on and be able to live a functional, happy, hopefully uh, productive life. There has to be more put into that on the front end so that this person doesn't recycle in and out of you know, jail cells or in and out of hospitals, emergency rooms, and costing a great deal of money. And I think you profiled someone similar to that in, in your film, Anthony. But the idea that w- wanting to make a real commitment at the outset as opposed to the piecemeal things that keep happening as people just sort of recirculate. Well, I, I think the other thing is really reframing or rethinking about the way that we approach addiction. I think in the traditional model, you know, you wait till somebody's ready to go into treatment, ready to go into residential facility. Or they have to earn it. But the reality is a lot of people are not ready. So I think we really need to start looking at a harm reduction approach, looking at, well, how can you um, you invest in programs such as needle exchange and use that as a way to build a rapport with somebody, slowly engage them in services, really kind of ease them into the service system so you are able to give them the level of intensity that you need to address the issue. And those are some of the things that we're doing as we're starting to more specifically target our resources. I think we're also really re-looking at how we think of our shelter system as a whole. We know um, historically for many shelters, if somebody was actively using 
that would be a barrier to get into shelter. One of the things that um, many shelters are doing now is really relooking at um, their policies for entry, lowering barriers, um, using harm reduction approach, um, and really trying to see how can we use some of our existing shelter inventory to get some of these individuals off the street and on the path to housing using sort of this housing first concept. So rather than waiting for someone to get ready, you um, lower the barriers, get them off the streets as quickly as you can and provide them the wraparound support so that they can um, be more stabilized and in a more permanent situation. And having said that, though, the some of the, the flip side that we hear is that in saying that that's exactly the kind of situation that someone might find him or herself and if they're coming into a shelter that that also becomes scary because even if people are you know abusing substances they know what they're doing when they're doing it with whom and how but they don't necessarily know if they come into a shelter who's next to them or what's they're, what they're going to face if someone is going to have a communicable disease or other things that, I mean, some of this is, is, is surely myth, but even as we talk to people and they say these things over and over again, they say them enough to where they believe it's actually true, which shows up in the beds that go wanting mm-hmm. all the time. Now, I know you're trying to make shelters more hospitable, and some who you know are looking at doing that say it's going to cost them, that there may be bed space that's going to be taken up by this and and trying to balance that out too. But how do you begin to approach this so that you have a sense of of, equanimity with this, that you don't have people who are in situations where they too feel threatened, where they might be potentially threatening to somebody else? Well, I I think what it is um, involves a lot of education about Housing First and what Housing First is as a philosophy. I think one of the things that's happened over... um, the past year or so is there's been an effort actually from the private sector for the philanthropic community to the Hawaii Community Foundation where they identified um, eight family shelters throughout the state to really um, bring these shelters together and start having conversations about housing first, what it is, how you make some of these refinements to your policies. And I think, Rona, you might be able to speak to this a little bit better than me. Mm-hmm. So that's true. So to get the shelter to understand that shorter stays are better and to really work towards that, not just in in a silo by themselves or by ourselves, um, but to kind of problem solve across all of the the different um, approaches and different staffs and and to figure out how to to get to that point. But also I wanted to say that shelter is not for everyone. Um, The person who's saying that they don't want to be there because they're afraid, maybe that's not for them. The housing first approach doesn't mean you need to go through a shelter to get into housing. So um, you may be someone who needs to go straight into your own unit. And, you know, through the Housing First programs, the city and state programs, we've seen success. And these are the chronically homeless individuals who are duly diagnosed. They may still be using um, substances, but once they're in housing, they can maintain it. Um, You know, people say that there are many people using drugs who are perfectly housed and no one even knows that and you know once they get into their own unit they're able to care for it we've seen um, folks get jobs um, not not necessarily using and getting jobs but they're able to to pick up their life and get to a place where um, just yesterday I one of our clients um, he wants to advocate and he actually has found his own, himself a new unit that he wants to move to he negotiated with the landlord um, on the rent because there was a parking stall involved and and that's just a higher level of functioning and he went from being on the street chronically homeless and someone that we may have been afraid of 
you know, as you passed, to someone who we know and and is, is right. a neighbor. I mean, I mean that that's. I think the fear factor I'm talking about is from homeless person to homeless person. Sure. As opposed to And I'm saying that maybe outside. if you're afraid the model of service you need is not going into a shelter, maybe going straight into housing. And there's many rapid rehousing programs that, that address that. And that also goes back to your point earlier about figuring out who's in what bucket and how yes. to address those needs differently, exactly. which goes back to the rest of us not looking at this and, and just saying it's homeless not with one, a capital H. Exactly. It's not which one we've also one. been talking about for a long time. But, you know, Anthony... Sorry, uh, so I, I just want to say something to, to, to the caller, which is, you know, this is a complex problem. Uh, it demands complex solutions. Uh, what, one of the great things about what Scott's doing is that he is, he's been in the business so long that he's able to, to address the complexity of the issue. But another piece of it is it's emotionally complex too. And one of the things I think that the public has to understand is that while at the same time as we're saying to them, you need to feel some compassion for these people because a lot of them have very real problems, it's also okay at times to feel angry towards them because it's not okay for people to to be committing crimes. Uh, I believe the community has a responsibility to take care of the homeless, and I believe the homeless have a corresponding responsibility to understand that they are a, a part of our community. It's not okay. I mean, when we were filming down in Waikiki, we would see uh, outreach workers from IHS going to the same guys again and again and again. I mean, dozens, literally dozens of times. And they were camped out in one of the pavilions on Kalakawa Avenue that was built for the enjoyment of the community and of tourists. And the community and the tourists weren't able to use that pavilion because the homeless were camped there and they were urinating and defecating that. That's not acceptable. And it's okay for us to come along and say to them, that's not acceptable. It can't stop there. We then have to come up with a solution that finds a way to get them out of that place, that gets them into the treatment that they may need, whether it's it's drug addiction or whatever. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. But I, I want to ask you about that because we have also seen some legislation that was attempted to see how much intervention can we do as a member of the public or even as a family member with someone who may be in that situation? And the counter argument is, well, are you going to, in fact, be you know, trouncing all over somebody's civil liberties, even if they are, in fact, someone who is mentally ill or if they're... It's much more in difficult in this state than it is in some other, other states to get people into... Uh, a secure nursing facility. It's more difficult to get a guardianship, a legal guardianship, so that somebody can get the, be placed by their family into a secure facility. We don't have enough secure nursing facilities. And the crazy thing is, at the end of the day, we are still do- dealing with this problem. We are still spending the money. It costs $4,000 a month, roughly, to put somebody in jail or prison in this state. And a lot of the people who are in jail or in prison are people with severe mental illness or drug addiction, it would be such a better use of resources to get the treatment to those people that they need that could help turn them around and lead them to have productive lives so that they actually start paying taxes and contribute back to this community. And I know that that's what Scott wants to work on. And I I know that he's pushing that. And I know that we're going to see legislation in the next session of the legislature. But it does feel, I think, because this problem has been growing, for so long, it feels like a sort of a, a, a spill of molasses that's slowly engulfing us, and it's been going on for years. The, the, the progress also seems incredibly slow as you start to push back, and people get frustrated, and it's okay to feel frustrated because it's a very frustra- frustrating situation. But I come back again to this. We need the will of the community. You know, you, none of these problems can be fixed at, without spending money. We will save money 
in the medium term and the long term if we invest the money up front. But we still have to invest the money up front. And Scott alluded to this when he said, you know, the governor's got many different priorities on his plate. He's got education or whatever. How do we decide to spend this money? How does the governor say, I'm going to spend money on these people that I know a lot of you in the community don't feel particularly sympathetic towards, but we have to do it without the community turning around and saying, no, we don't want you to spend that money. Well, you're talking about someone who has, you know, the the moxie and, and the political will to do it. Well, and I'm, I'm and, the, and the question is, in fact, will we will we see that? Because we keep dancing around the same thing and saying some very good parts of this. I mean, this conversation we could have had 10 years ago. We could have had it five years ago. Scott, you and I have been having it for many years. Where do you go with this, and how do you make some of that progress in a way that people do feel that something is being done? Although, you know, clearly progress has been made. That's why I asked you a little earlier about that sense of frustration and public anger. And when that starts to turn the tide and you don't have people as receptive to what it is you want to do, the money is going to have to be spent later on anyway, and it's still going to come out of our pockets. Well, I think that's why we can't be afraid of acknowledging the success and the progress that we have made and realize that even though it may not be as fast as we want it to be, we are making progress. With an issue this complex and this layered, I think we need to really look at the progress that we're having and build upon it. I think sometimes what happens is because the frustration is so great, you know, people just set aside any progress we've made and say, oh, we got to start from scratch again. And I think we have to make the mistake of not doing that. We really need to continue the focus, continue the momentum, and continue to really build upon the little gains that we've made. It's very similar, I think, if, if you know, for anyone who's ever tried to lose weight and you, you go on a diet, and part of it is, you know, you have to see it through. You have to continue to, you know, watch what you eat, continue to exercise on a regular basis. And that's not a hard concept. But a lot of people have a hard time following it through for sort of similar reasons that you get frustrated because it's not easy. And the gains that you make initially are very slow. I know for myself, you know, I've tried many times and it's much harder than you think. But if the people who have made progress, they stay focused, you stay committed and you're willing to see it through for the long yeah. haul. And I think on this issue of homelessness, we need to do the same and not forget the progress and the early wins that we've made over this past year. You're also making the point that we need to do what's right and Mm -hmm. stay the course, even if that's not easy. We're going to take a couple more callers now. Our number is 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Going to Chris calling us from the North Shore. Aloha, Chris, and thank you for your patience. Yes, I I really wanted to make two points uh, that are affecting housing and incomes right now that really add pressure to the problems you're talking about. Um, on on one hand, uh, we have the illegal rentals. And I, I understand people want to buy a house and rent short term and make a lot of money, but it, it's displacing a significant amount of people, and it's really driving rents up dramatically. I, I know that the house that I live in has increased 50% in cost over the last five years. And I actually spoke with the person who used to rent it, who is a homeless person that doesn't live very far away from where I live. Uh, So, you know, the state just did a study that found that we had 100,000 unlicensed uh, short-term rentals in the state of Hawaii. And I think, off of memory, I think they said, uh, I remember them saying that there were 50,000 on Honolulu. 
or excuse me, on Oahu alone. All right, all right, Chris, you can. Stay. So, so that's we, that's driving up rent. Yeah, we, we hear you. We, we got the point. We've got callers coming, so I want to make sure we can get your point in too. We and, hear and this argument. The, the other, another another factor that really affects people is, um, you know, we've really let the minimum wage and the minimum income. Uh, uh, we've allowed it to become greatly out of scale with the cost of living in Hawaii, and we have people working forty-hour-a-week jobs. And they're getting health care because of the state law, but they're also eligible for food stamps. And these are people getting paid several dollars above minimum wage. And when, when we are allowing the employers of our state to get rich by not paying their employees enough to eat or enough to, per, to purchase housing, then, then we're putting added pressure on the homeless pro, uh, situation. You're making the point that there are so many levels to this. This is so nuanced and shaded, and that there are so many parts to the complexity of, of you know, issue of homelessness, which we've talked about. But, you know, Anthony, I mean, this is something that is near and dear to your heart. You just wrote an op-ed about this. Yeah. The, obviously, the minimum wage is way too low. Uh, if the minimum wage today were, were had kept place with inflation from the day it was in, first implemented, I think it would be something like 21 bucks an hour. It's $8.50 an hour in Hawaii at the moment. It's supposed to get up to 10.10 by, by 2018. Anybody who lives here knows that that's not enough. I mean, uh, uh, th- that amount of money is, is just not enough to live on. Um, so we need to raise the minimum wage. Uh, but another issue is is the, the issue was talking about the short-term rentals. That, it, funnily enough, when I interviewed Eric Gill for the, for the film, he said, oh, how about you guys making a video about – about the short-term rentals at Airbnb. And I said, why? And he said, because it's undermining union jobs in the hotel industry. And so I turned to my partner. I said, how about it? My partner said, uh-uh, I can't do it. I've got some close friends, and the only reason they're able to live in Hawaii is because they're renting out a, a room in their house for short-term rentals. So clearly that they have to be thought of as well. I think there has to be a happy medium. In New York City, what they did is they said, you can't rent out a place for less than a, a month at a time. Maybe that's one way of doing it. So there's still some room for people to do vacation rentals, but there's also a way of bringing, clawing back some of those those houses for, for, for rental. The other thing I wanted to touch on was the, 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 the thing that the guy said about um, uh, rent controls. I, I lived in New York City in a rent-controlled apartment. My experience with rent controls is that the people who take advantage of that tend to be upper-middle-class people. They are the ones with the knowledge. They pass it around amongst them, their friends. It's the same with inclusionary zoning. These are palliatives that the government imposes that actually have the effect of deterring developers from building more housing. We need to bite the bullet. And I have to admit that there are people, you know, I'm chair of the, the Sierra Club on Oahu. Environmentalists have, have made it very difficult and costly to get the permits to build housing. And in some places, that's right, because we shouldn't be building in the country. But we've also made it difficult to build in the city. And it shouldn't be. I, I would I would be happy to, to, to sit down with the city, with the state, and find ways to uh, fast-track permitting in certain places, like, you know, like a, the corridor between Makali and Mo'ili'ili. Fast-track it so developers can – because, you know, the cost of building housing here, a right. third of it is, is in right. the permitting and, and process. And most of those are two, you know, two-story walk-ups. And there's – I mean, you're talking about density. That's the prime area that would be really ripe for the kind of density that you're talking about. Right. I want to take a few more callers so that they can get in here too because the hour is running long now. Going to Kate calling us from Honolulu. And thank you for your patience, Kate. Thank you. Um, I had a circumstance this, this weekend um, where I – 
I'm I'm so sorry. I'm getting feedback. Um, I I met a homeless man in, in I met a homeless man in in Kaka'ako, and I did you tr- Kate, Kate? Have you yes. turned down your radio? I'm 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 here. Let me do this. I'm um I'm so so sorry. I waited such a long time to talk. <laughs> just, just wait one minute, please. Okay, very quickly because we're because we're starting to lose okay. you. Here's here's what happened. There's no place for someone to go that's free. They wanted sixty dollars for this poor guy to go into it to go into the Kakako place. Okay, got they it. Want a hundred dollars for IHS, and he's not crazy. He's not a drug addict. He needed a place to stay. He was cold. He was hungry. It was Thanksgiving. I don't know what to do. Good question, and thank you very much for for the call. We've heard this too that the the barrier to entry may not be whether or not somebody is using or not, mm-hmm. but the mere fact that they've got no money, they have no way of getting it. Some people don't even have IDs to be able to come in, and yet they're stuck, and so, so they're they're out there on the street too. So- as I say, is looking at transforming our system of shelter care. That's actually one of the things that we're looking at is the fees that are charged in many of these facilities. And I think it's a balance because for some of the shelters, they rely on the fee to um, support some of the operating costs for the facility. And the operating costs are pretty um, substantial for some of these shelters. But I think at the same time, for someone who has zero income at all, we want to make sure that shelters are available, that they have an ability to get in. That's actually one of the things that um, you know we did receive feedback on as we're going through this procurement process for our shelter contracts right now that we are looking at very closely. Before the hour is up, I want to talk to you specifically about youth homelessness because it seems that that's an area where we hear the least and where there seems to be such a great need. All you have to do is go walk around Waikiki of a night, and if you're perceptive and you can see what's going on. And we've talked to Ali Campbell over at Halekipa a number of times, and his point is that you're dealing with people who are very often three different ages. They have the experiential age because they've been out in the street and having to cope with it. There's their chronological age, and then there's their developmental age, which may not at all be in concert with the other two, and trying to move somebody who is a youth who may be 19, 20, 22, when you have different uh, criteria for youth. Some say it's, you know, it goes up to 22, some say 24, some say it has to be this or that or other circumstances with it. How do you now begin to address that at such a vulnerable time where we know mental illness raises its head and becomes so obvious in, in, in that population? And also, how do you keep them from falling into extended homelessness when they are, are you know, kicked into having to deal with the world as an adult and adult homeless programs? Well, I think there really are very different strategies to deal with the youth homeless population. One of the things I think that's very potentially exciting is um, Partners in Care on Oahu just yesterday actually submitted an application um, to HUD for a youth demonstration project to see if we can get some additional resources to really strengthen our system of care for homeless youth here locally. I think it's really complex, not only because of the issues that um, you and Alika had pointed out, but because when you look at underage youth, youth under the age of 18, they face many other different challenges that they're not able to even access a mainstream shelter in many they're cases minors. because they're minors. And the, the irony is that some of these 
kids are, are homeless because they are living in circumstances where you have three, four generations of a single family in a single family home, which is leading to I- inappropriate sexual contact and that kind. Of, so it, the housing crisis is actually it, it's a it's a, a, yeah, and, and it's some a vicious of them cycle been thrown away, too. And, and some of them have run away because things at home have been so so miserable. But it seems like we don't spend enough time focusing on on that population. No, and I, I think it's just as you deal with any other population, I think it really is about building the trust of rapport and the relationship with the individual so that you're able to bring them into services and care no matter what it is. I think there's an array of services to meet the different levels of need, but it starts with a relationship with building trust. Um, you know, we were actually just talking to staff of Child Welfare Services, and they said the way that you make progress with this population is not through a punitive means where you're going in, you know, um, threatening to arrest somebody or cite them. It really is building the rapport, um, getting a relationship established. And from there, it really opens many doors. Um, you know, the other day, maybe a, a couple months ago, actually, I was at Halamaliola for an event, and I happened to just kind of get aside by myself. And I was sitting at a bench table there, and I ran into someone that we had encountered in Kaka'ako before. And he had told me, hey, you, you remember me? And I told him, yeah, I do. And the thing he pointed out to me is this was somebody we had arranged to get into shelter 10 times. And he had, um, you know, kind of just been playing around with us. But on the 11th time, he showed up. We got him into Halamaliola. It turned his life around. And he said the thing that made a difference is that we um, kept showing up. You didn't give up. Yeah. He knew that we wanted to build a relationship with him. And that's really key. And as you go forward and you're talking about those who are now not under 18, but in that 18 to 24 range, that seems to be that it would be even more important because at that point, even more has happened in that young person's life. I wish we had more time to talk. I want to go right around the table once again. If you have a wish list for the coming legislative session, what's the one thing in it? Rona? Oh, gosh. Um, more money to, to build affordable Everybody housing. Says more money. Yes. <laughs> Anthony? Well, you have to have more money if you're going to build the affordable housing. You, there has to be a commitment, and they have to they have to open themselves up to working with the with the private sector because it's only the private sector and market forces that are going to be able to address this problem. It cannot be fixed by government alone. And the community at large that's listening in, they have to get on board too. They have to support this. Uh, I and think Scott? it's not just an issue of resources. I really hope that the dialogue at the legislature happens where we're able to highlight a lot of the same issues that we talked about here today because I think we re- these are all issues that are very complex and we really need to drill deep. And in some cases, it's not just a matter of money. It's how do we better align our system to be able to make progress on some of these things. Use what we have even better. I want to thank all of you for making time tonight. We'll all reconvene at some point as we move through the next legislative session. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to Scott Morishige, the state homeless coordinator, Rona Fukumoto, the division administrator of the housing assistance and referral programs at Catholic Charities Hawaii, and to Anthony Alto, filmmaker, and many other things, including head of Sierra Club on Oahu. We'll get back to this because one thing we do know, unless we do something, it's not going to go away. That being homelessness. I'm Beth Ann Koslovich. I'll see you in the morning for the conversation. Have yourselves a good evening. Aloha.